Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. It's The Wonky Show. We talk EU students, overeducated graduates, the BME attainment gap, and Cambridge addresses its not-so-pleasant history. It's all coming up. I personally have no confidence in some central planning regime that would determine not only the total number of graduates across the sector, but also the total number of graduates by discipline area to somehow meet a future economic need in five or ten years' time. I'm, I'm sort of, my sense is, if, if there's a sense that too many graduates... Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm Rachel Firth and here to run around the 400 metre track of higher education policy. As usual, we have three fabulous guests. In London, we have Rachel Hall, University's Editor at The Guardian. Rachel, give us your highlight of the week, please. Well, I feel like if I were a Game of Thrones fan, I would say Game of Thrones. <laughs> but since I'm not, um, I think I'm going to say The Guardian breaking even. Um, so we found out this year that after three years of belt tightening, The Guardian has not only broken even, but turned a very small operating profit. Mm. Um, so that's all been very good news. We had cupcakes in the office yesterday. So happy oh. days. Uh, and in Birmingham, we have Alec Cameron, Vice Chancellor of Aston University. Alec. Give us your highlight of the week, please. Uh, Rachel, I want to treat cheat if possible and give you two, oh, um, unless you tell me I can't. No, um, that's fine. That's right. So first and biggest one for Aston University is yesterday we formally opened our new students' union building. So um, having opened the building to students at the start of this week, and it's wonderful to, seeing, to see our new students so quickly own their new building and take evident pleasure in, in a new and purpose-built student union facility as the, the heart of student activity at the university. So that's the one. Um, and the second one, once again, a parochial Aston view, um, the CUG rankings yesterday were asked to moved up 11 places to number 34, which um, whilst I spent a bit of time as a Vice-Chancellor discounting the importance of, of rankings, um, we should always celebrate them when they move in our favour. And in finally, in Durham, we have Wonky's Associate Editor, Jim Dickinson. Jim, give me your highlight of the week, please. So you'd expect me, because it's May, to talk about the Eurovision, but there is, a, a, there is, at, least, <laughs> there is at least a vague uh, kind of link to uh, policy this time. So my highlight of the week was the moment when uh, Toby Young and others, you know, almost on our FS board, Toby Young, pointed out that Greta Thunberg's mother was in the Eurovision for Sweden uh, and was therefore privileged, that unique privilege of coming 22nd in the 2009 contest in Russia. So there you go. It was reported this week that Education Secretary Damon Hines is proposing to remove the so-called home fee status and financial support from EU citizens as, part, as the start of the academic year in 2021. During, during an urgent question in the Commons, Minister Chris Skidmore did not rule out a fee rise, but said a decision had not yet been taken. So, Jim, what did you make of all this? 
Well, so it's been quite an interesting week this week on the international students front. And there's a couple of other stories. So let me just talk about those and uh, very quickly and then I'll talk about this one. So uh, obviously the week started with the move from Joe Johnson, a kind of cross-party move to insert a amendment into uh, one of the immigration bills that's hurtling its way through the uh, parliamentary process at the moment, which would have the effect of... Um, recreating the two-year post-study work visa. Um, and, but widely seen as quite a smart move, as I say, cross-party support, um, highly likely to pass, lots of people think. Then almost as soon as that news hit, BuzzFeed uh, were, were reporting this, what appeared to be Damien Hines' story, which was much more hostile towards uh, kind of immigration and international students and so on, which was this brief that EU students would face higher fees. Of course, the truth about that is, of course they would, because they wouldn't be EU students anymore. Um, but it was the framing and the briefing that uh, I thought was interesting, which, you know, days after this kind of other wing of the Tory party was very keen to... Uh, talk about the benefits of international students. And then in the background of all of that, we've had this uh, overseas student visa row. So it's quite an old story, this, which is uh, home office, hostile environment, a bunch of students who the BBC had investigated their English language testing centre and worked out there was some cheating going on. And the home office uh, took punitive action on all of the students that had been kind of through the system. And this story is now finally starting to uh, come to the surface. We expected a, an answer from uh, Sajid Javid last week. And then it emerged that the National Audit Office were looking into this. So it bought the government a little bit of time on whether or not uh, a kind of uh, a student version of Windrush had been uh, uh, perpetuated by the government. I think what's interesting about the trio of stories is what it starts to reflect is the kind of different, is the jockeying inside the Tory party and the, the kind of different wings of the party and their different attitudes towards immigration. And you get the sense. So you've got Joe Johnson on the kind of internationalist left of the Tories, uh, you know, very pro-immigration. You've got Theresa May back when she was in the Home Office and the hostile environment and so on. And then uh, Damien Hines tacking to the right, presumably to uh, either to jockey for the leadership or at least uh, stay in uh, cabinet if there's a new prime minister. You get the sense that none of these stories are really about what's best for higher education, those students or for Britain. You get a sense that this is our own little corner of the the jockeying inside the Tory party and how best to appeal to, you know, the 150,000 activists that will end up voting in the leadership election, which I think is quite sad. Um, well, I think, I think it's interesting what Jim was saying about the kind of division in the Tory party. What I found quite interesting when I went and read through the questions to Chris Skidmore was, I mean, there is obviously, you know, I guess, a kind of division between those who take a softer and those who take a harder approach to immigration. But I did kind of something that stood out for me was a, a question from Jacob Rees-Mark being saying, you know, why should we offer preferential treatment to these students coming from wealthier countries when we could, um, you know, which would kind of sort of disadvantage uh, students coming from India and China. So I think there's also a gap between um, the kind of Tories who see themselves as more connected with the whole European project and those who like this idea of sort of Britain out on its own in the world, kind of opening up to, to other countries um, and sort of kind of turning away from Europe and seeing itself as, as more, I guess, maybe this kind of empire 2.0, which is a bit of a depressing prospect. Um, I think, but I think for me, the big question about this is, is it's really fundamentally about what our partnership should look with, uh, with Europe should look like going forward. Um, 
you know, I, I think there's, there's very, you know, in addition to all the questions about university bottom lines, I think there's, you know, it's about whether you think that we should still have a sort of close and meaningful relationship with Europe that maybe is differentiated from, from the, the relationship we have with, with other countries. Mm. Alec, I mean, you lead an institution, you're directly affected by these policy and legislative uh, decisions. What did you make of this? Well, firstly, I didn't really see it as news. I mean, the expected position has always been that post-Brexit um, EU students would be treated as international students. So, um, you know, in some sense, it didn't seem to be an announcement. It seemed to be, in some sense, a repeating of a previous position. Um, I think this position sometimes also been represented in the media, and particularly on social media, um, in some sense, as vice-chancellors are being opposed to a change in these arrangements. Um, I I'm aware that there are some vice-chancellors who would prefer EU students to be treated differently post-Brexit than other international students, but unless I've missed something, that's not the position of the UK, which is, you know, in some sense because the membership is split on this issue. And I think there would be many, and perhaps a majority of vice-chancellors who would, sit on balance, see benefits in being able to attract EU students on the same terms um, that they have successfully attracted other international students. So, you know, I, I, if I sort of start by saying I'm, um, you know, very much um, support and welcome a stronger international approach from UK universities and seeing, and government, uh, and seeing more international students coming to the UK and an extremely supportive of Joe Johnson initiative to reinstate the two-year work visas. Um, and I think, once again, this, it's been demonstrated that notwithstanding some pretty equivocal government policy in this area, UK universities have been extremely successful in building a fantastic global position as a destination of choice for international students. Um, and also, of course, the economic benefits and the soft diplomacy benefits of the UK are profound from having a good international student presence. But I'd argue that in reality, the story has been the UK universities have been more successful in attracting students from outside of the EU than from inside of the EU. There are already within the UK, within the UK higher education sector, more students, for instance, from China than from the other 26 nations of the EU. So, you know, in the environment where UK universities have been able to, um, let me say, realise a good return on their investment in student marketing and recruitment and set their own fee levels and so forth, they've been fantastically successful. So I'm pretty bullish, actually, about the prospects of UK universities attracting students from the EU in the medium to longer term on the same basis that they have been able to address other international mar markets and on balance. As a Vice-Chancellor, I would much prefer the autonomy of being able to set our own pricing levels for EU students post-Brexit, rather than, in some sense, having that done for us by government. Until PMQs, I do think one of the miserable things about the debate is that it focused on the amount that international students, either EU or non-EU, would pay to come to the UK. And it was actually only the SNP sticking a question into Theresa at PMQs that... Uh, highlighted the kind of the, the other side of this, which is, um, you know, if there's a deal, you know, depending on the type of deal and so on, there are plenty of students in the UK that want to go to universities around Europe at a beneficial price and at the price, you know, at, at the sort of rates that many European countries uh, universities charge, which is in some cases free. And Theresa's answer, I thought, was really interesting, which was, 
uh, effectively, don't worry about it, we've got plenty of really good universities in the UK, which is really tin-eared if you look at the kind of attitudes of Generation Z and, uh, and the way in which young people generally, if you look at the polling, see themselves as not just European but international, people that want to travel the world, that want to get involved in the Erasmus programme and so on. And, you know, the answer that is, don't worry, you can stay here in the UK, is probably not the answer that lots of young people uh, will want to hear. Sure. And look, once again, Jim, if I just sort of intervene on that, I mean, there's no doubt that we greatly value mobility opportunities for UK students. Right? So once again, Erasmus has been a very positive program there. Um, and irrespective of the outcome of the Brexit negotiations, we are um, very strongly hopeful that the government will be supportive of mobility arrangements for UK students into the EU and into the rest of the world uh, in the future. Right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week. This is Stephen Goddard. I'm a professor at Durham University in, uh, in the UK, talking about the work that we've been doing, particularly on contextualised admissions for widening participation to higher education. In the long term, we probably need solutions from the school sector so that the applicants to university are less stratified by background variables such as poverty and ethnicity. And we also probably need to address the very high level of, of selection in some parts of the IT sector. It's not entirely clear that that's necessary or fruitful. But at least in the short term, then we need to solve the problems of stratification um, in some other way. And one of the most promising approaches is the use of contextualized admissions. This is a very topical issue at the moment. Uh, it's clear that not all prior qualifications, such as A-levels in England, that allow access to universities are merited by their recipients. I don't mean incompletely merited, I just mean that to some extent there are adjustments that could be made to how we view those. An obvious example, and I think it's quite uncontroversial, is the age in year. It's quite clear that summer-born young people attain lower uh, qualifications on average and that um, they're much less likely to go to university than winter-born children. I'm JC Clearer. I'm a director at EY and I lead our education transformation process. This week, I explore five technology trends influencing higher education based on higher education in the UK, overseas and across the wider public sector. I look at how things like robotics, analytics and artificial intelligence will be influencing universities in years to come. And I argue that whether it's in 5, 10 or 15 years time, these these types of technology will be deployed much more routinely than they currently are. And so there's real competitive advantage to getting ahead of the game. Next up, analysis from the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, showed that in 2017, 16% of UK workers aged 16 to 64 were overeducated for the roles they were performing. So as DK on wonky.com put it this week, are graduates overeducated and underpaid? Rachel, what was your take on all of this? I feel like a new report sort of of saying something vaguely similar like this comes out basically every few months. Um, I feel like all of this has to be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt because it really so much depends on on the definitions. I mean, there's some reports that have shown a kind of 30% skills mismatch, others 60%. And so, you know, when you see these kind of stats, it gives this kind of illusion of objectivity. But it's, it's really quite hard to define sometimes whether skills gained from a degree are being used, especially if they're softer skills, along with what does and doesn't constitute a graduate job. I mean, there's so many jobs that 50 years ago wouldn't have asked for candidates to have a degree. I mean, journalism is one of them that now expect, expect it and might ask for a master's as well. Um, you know, and all of that's just on the employer side. Um, I thought it was interesting in David Kernahan's piece um, 
where he points out just how vague the graduate job classifications used by organisations like the ONS can be as well. I mean, the other point is around this idea of how graduates are underpaid. And I think it's sometimes a bit unfair the way universities are being held to account for this, for instance, through the the kind of focus on the, the Leo salary data. And, um, you know, I think this is actually a kind of broader societal question. You know, I think it's more about how remuneration works in our economy. Um, and I don't think we can blame universities for low salaries in subjects which are linked to the creative arts or the humanities or, or caring professions. Um, you know, it's hard to argue that salaries always reflect merit or hard work or experience or social utility um, or what's been gained in a, in a degree. And they're, they're quite a sort of weak proxy for career success. So, you know, obviously, if things like this, like this report encourage universities to be in, you know, ever closer dialogue with with employers about skills needs. You know, I think I think that's a good thing. But at the same time, I don't. I sort of agree with what I felt was 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 David's interpretation that the problem isn't necessarily about the education that's being provided by universities or even how many students are going to universities. It's you know his as he said, um, you know, it's equally valid to argue that the employment market is not adequately rewarding people for the skills they bring to the jobs they do. And I think I think that would that would be my conclusion as well. Uh, look, I mean, once again, I'd, I'd reiterate the comments that Rachel made with regard to, I think there are measurement issues associated with this data. I think the whole issue in some sense of, you know, what is the qualification level expectation in a particular vocation uh, evolves over time. And once again, my reading of David Kern- David's analysis was that, um, you know, in some sense, professions that where there are now graduate requirements which didn't exist in the past might lead to the, the measurement of the current graduates who are being employed as being overqualified or um, overeducated for that discipline. I think the, the other side, of course, for my view is, well, so what, what would be proposed? I personally have no confidence in some central planning regime that would determine not only the total number of graduates across the sector, but also the total number of graduates by discipline area to somehow meet a future economic need in five or ten years' time. I'm, I'm sort of, my sense is, if, if there's a sense that too many graduates are being produced, then, you know, what would we like to achieve is is the alternative better, which is too few graduates being produced. And I think the data also doesn't speak to the fact that, yes, there may be some graduates who aren't fully utilising their education at the moment, but that doesn't mean in, in six months' time or two years' time or five years' time they won't be. So I'm I'm pretty dismissive of this issue, but I, of course the risk is that it's picked up by people who do have an agenda, and that agenda may be to reduce the number of students going to university. I am really conflicted on this. So... Um, on the one, you know, absolutely agree with everything said so far. I mean, part of this is, you know, that thing about judging whether or not people are in careers that will reward the, you know, their investment and the government's investment, um, frequently looks at that, those kind of Leo data. Uh, proxies and and we know that part of the problem with doing that is that with an aging population um, and people delaying the three magic markers of adulthood, which are kind of childbirth, property ownership, uh, and and so on. That 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 because that isn't happening now until people are t- kind of thirty two, thirty three. The idea that you assess people kind of ten years out from their last bit of higher education is a bit preposterous because people are getting into the kind of long term kind of proper career that they will have much, 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 much later. But all of our assessment still, you know, looks at people six months and a few years out. All of that said, and notwithstanding all the stuff about kind of categorisation of what is a graduate level job and so on, if I just look at my filter bubble uh, on Twitter and so on, the, the usual stuff came out, which is, oh, well, I mean, we, you know, we should want a more educated population and, you know, we shouldn't be so utilitarian and so on, which I think is fine from the 
privileged position that we all sit in inside higher education. If you're an individual student and or if you're the government and there are decisions to be made about where you put your money, if tons of people are putting their money into, either collectively or individually, education that they think is really important for a particular job or career and then turns out not to be really important for a job or career, there is at least a good argument that says, could we have spent that money in another way? And, you know, I have some considerable sympathy with that position when, you know, in order to get through and complete a master's or a PhD, people are investing a huge amount of, you know, kind of time and opportunity cost and so on to get there. Um, and it could be, it could be uh, that that time and money could have been invested in other things uh, in order to realise society and individual goals. So I'm a bit conflicted. I just don't think it's as simple as, well, we should want everyone to have uh, a PhD. Now, now, last week, the Student Records Officer Conference was held at Cranfield University, where our very own David Kernahan led a session, and there were some interesting words from OFS Head of Data, Foresight and Analysis, Richard Puttock. Let's take a listen. Um, I'm just wondering if you fancy giving me an update on the Office for Students uh, data strategy. You mentioned you're thinking of updating and renewing that. Is there any particular issues you've spotted so far? Um, so our data strategy that we released last year was designed to be um, an interim data strategy reflecting the fact that we were an organisation in development. Um, So you'll have seen that there was quite a lot of things in that strategy that were about uh, getting a set up, getting on the first step to to being a regulator. Um, And as we move forward, we'll want to be far more ambitious in our use of data. Um, The Data Futures programme will give us far more timely data. Um, and we'll also want to draw in more data from organisations such as UCAS SLC data, making better use of linked data. We'll want to dip our toe into um, big data from, from the web. Um, so as time moves forward, we'll want to be far more ambitious and far more creative in, in what we're doing with data. So yeah. this was very much a first step. I mean, obviously, we all look forward to seeing that. Are you, are you going to be running a full consultation at any point? I mean, obviously, as we've heard from the person this morning, there are yeah. concerns out there about the way OFS is using data in policy making and in regulation. Um, we would expect to consult on our next data strategy. Um, and we're working with HESA in the future about consulting on detailed data requirements as well. So we talked a bit earlier about the, yes. ca- the uh, capacity for data analysis and using data in institutions in the sector, in particular smaller institutions. Um, I mean, I've heard from several places that they're really struggling to use the data provided <laughs> that underpins the access and participation uh, data set that links to the plans they've got to submit. Yeah. Um, are the Office of Students uh, are, are going to be offering any further support for institutions and individuals in that space? Yeah, so obviously we're aiming to make our data as open and as accessible as possible, um, but also on particular areas, so the access participation data Boards. Uh, my colleagues in uh, Chris Millwood's directorate, the Access Participation Director, are holding uh, telephone surgeries for individuals so that um, they can phone up and understand uh, what the data mean to them. So there is some support available. That's really, really encouraging. I know a lot of people would be pleased to hear that. So, uh, uh, sorry. Uh, so, uh, Data Futures is obviously the big. Yep topic on everybody's minds here at Shrock. Um, back when you, back when the DFE and yourselves decided to award the designated data body um, role to HISA, you 
said that you had confidence that the uh, the new methods of uh, collecting and uh, submitting data outlining in data futures would suit your needs. But since then, we've seen a very large shift, shall we say, in the uh, data futures direction. D does the new program also meet your needs as a regulator? Yes. So we've always been clear. So Nicola uh, gave evidence to um, the PAC back in, in January last year, uh, where she affirmed that data three times a year would be sufficient for our needs. So that would be sufficient for us in, in the short to medium term. Uh, that position has not changed. He's the data futures um, at, through the changes that were announced on Tuesday. Uh, we think we'll still do that. Um, clearly, if HESA data futures have been able to deliver genuinely daily data, there would have potentially been some additional value to that. Um, it would have created greater future proofing. Unfortunately, the technical complexity of doing that, and I think the sector readiness to do that, uh, meant that actually that simply isn't isn't practical. Um, a HESA student record um, is always an abstraction of the underlying student records and business models within providers. So trying to map all of that in real time, trying to keep track of all of that where it's just small changes to data is technically very, very complex. Mm. Um, and actually a lot of the discussions we've had since we paused data futures uh, have been around actually we need to see the whole we can look at quality in the whole it's a holistic process um, and providers want to be able to know what is it that the regulator is looking at us how is the regulator judging us how are others judging us and that holistic data actually helps with that Next up, we talk about a new NUS and UK joint report. But first, I want to tell you that we are less than two weeks away from our event, Rules of Engagement, Building Political Trust and Confidence in Universities. The event is a must-attend for people working in policy, public affairs and external stakeholder management in universities, which I assume is you if you're listening to this. The day will focus on the policy challenges facing higher education, how to influence and the tools you need to affect political and policy change. We have plenaries featuring some of the best political commentators and sector insiders, workshops focusing on the skills of influencing and new this year, there will be an opportunity to have an in-depth policy conversation with your peers at the policy roundtables, sure to satisfy your inner want for at least the next week. To book your place and to see the full agenda, go to wonky.com forward slash events. That's wonky.com forward slash events. And we look forward to seeing you there. Next up, NUS and UK have jointly produced a report on black, Asian and minority ethnic student attainment at UK universities. Hashtag closing the gap. Alec, as you are a UK member, a member of the group which produced the report and your institution is featured in the report. I can't think of anyone better to tell us more about this one. Thanks, Rachel. Look, let me give the context. Um, as you said, the report is being produced today by uh, NUS and UK, and I think that's important that it's been a, a very strong and active collaboration between the representative student body and the representative university body to, to highlight and address this issue. Um, so what's the context? The context is in the last decade, we've had an increase in 50% of 50% of the number of BAME full-time undergraduate students in the UK. That's a very positive part of the story. Um, at the same time, um, we 
do have a significant attainment gap as measured by the number of students who receive a first or a 2-1, which currently is 81% of white students, but only uh, 71% of Asian students and only 57% of black students. So that's a, uh, an unacceptably large gap. Arguably any gap is unacceptable, but certainly at that scale, um, this is an issue which needs to be addressed. Um, that has been addressed, as I said, by uh, a joint activity between NUS and the UK looking into it. We've had um, many submissions from universities. We've had um, roundtables and workshops around the country, and there's been a fantastic level of engagement both from students and institutions to address this issue. What has come out of the, the uh, report are five steps to success, which have been identified as the, I suppose I'd say, the, the first step of the recipe to address this issue, and they are as follows. Um, strong leadership on the issue um, within institutions. So once again, vice-chancellors and their uh, executive teams um, speaking about and being seen to uh, take strong action on this issue. Having conversations about race and changing cultures. Once again, this is not an issue that is going to be aided by suppressing it. We need to get out in our communities in our universities and talk about the issue and talk about maybe the causes and talk about the success factors that we can achieve to improve this improve the position we need to develop more racially diverse and inclusive environments um, you know once again in many of our institutions um, Asian students black students may represent you know a, a, a quite distinct minority uh, and we need to support them and understanding how the curriculum and the environment at university may be acting against their attainment um, at the same time, we need to be undertaking valid research and understanding what works in terms of interventions, and we need to be sharing that information. Um, the report, is, as you've said, uh, launched today. Um, at the moment, 98 vice-chancellors have signed up to a pledge on this matter, and I'm going to say so far, my expectation is I suspect that almost all vice-chancellors will be keen to embrace a commitment to this plan of action to address what is a um, – I don't want to use the word blight what – what is a um, – an unacceptable condition of the sector at the moment and one that we as leaders of the sector need to be committed to resolving and doing whatever is necessary to achieve that. The the five points I found quite a bit of a damp squib. I felt like you could you could exchange any kind of issue that you just mentioned, the mental health crisis. You could even put a commuter students in there. So the the, the five issue, the five uh, kind of steps to tackle it just felt so uninspiring. This is what we do for everything. We need strong leadership. We need to have conversations about these things. You know, we need to include inclusive environments. We need the evidence and we understand what works. That's the same for access. That's the same for mental health. I just found it a bit kind of, it just seems that we, we, we're taking the same steps each time, right? Yeah. Well, so I haven't been able to read the exact content of the report yet but I think so what I did do is publish um, a piece so I've only read the kind of recommendations but I've had a piece that I've published today from one of the students involved who's called Adesewa Esther Adebisi and um, you know I think she made an extremely good point that I mean I guess it's quite hard to sort of capture everything that they're trying to say in, in this series of recommendations and um, you know she, her point is that a lot of the focus is on kind of data crunching the numbers to work out the problem and sometimes kind of using that to build this sort of deficit model which is trying to find out what's going wrong with black students and I think you know obviously it's very difficult for a report to convey what she's trying to say which is that really it's about the intangibles um, 
which you can't really capture in numbers and, and the fact that a lot of black, Asian and minority ethnic students don't really feel like they belong and that that causes them to disengage from their courses. So I think her point is more about um, the importance of, of listening to the kind of lived experiences of black, Asian and minority ethnic students and staff. Um, you know, I've heard elsewhere sort of complaints um, that, you know, a lot of discussions about how do we solve the, the BAME attainment gap or like the lack of, um, of black professors or whatever takes place among, you know, mostly white widening participation staff and they're locked away in a room together, sort of racking their heads over what's going wrong without ever asking, you know, one of their colleagues um, for advice. You know, I'm sure that's a caricature, but I do think there is like an element of of truth in that. So, um, you know, I think, you know, her, so her, her, her recommendation was just, you know, about trying to foster that sense of belonging, um, you know, seeing senior staff who, who are also black, Asian and minority ethnic, um, reading books written by people they feel like they can identify with. Uh, so they don't feel kind of excluded from the intellectual conversation. And that's obviously something that has kind of knock on benefits for, um, for, for all students, you know, a more inclusive curriculum kind of can, can, it is a much more rewarding learning experience. And it would be one that would cover sort of gender, socioeconomic background and disability as well and, and have that kind of spillover effect to making campuses a much more welcoming and inclusive places. So I do, I've got some sympathy in, in short with the UK report that it's quite, it's quite difficult to convey all of that in five recommendations. So they're always going to come across as a little bit reductive. Yeah. I mean, look, very quickly, in some senses, uh, I'm with you, Rachel, on this, that y y you read it and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, you need buy-in from senior leadership. Oh, yeah. And, and so on and so on. And, and you're right. You know, lots of these kind of problems, lots of these uh, reports tend to say similar things. But the one thing I would say about that is... Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about the kind of shift from just looking at access to access and participation more broadly, what Shakira, Martin and now Chris Millwood would call getting on as well as getting in. Uh, and I was reflecting on this watching the live stream of the OFS AMP event uh, this week, is that I, I think to some extent lots of institutions were able to, in the old world, um, focus on recruitment of particular types of students in order to pat themselves on the back and, and tick some boxes and, that, and and part of that goes to the heart of how universities often are run which is you know we've got lots of distributed leadership lots and lots of autonomy um, and if you've got a tight WP team that is able to target the right communities and the right students, you can make some inroads on the kind of access part of the story. I think, though, what OFS is doing and what this report does is reiterate to some extent, and that's why some of the recommendations I think look familiar, reiterate that just doing the thing with a tight kind of small team that kind of understands the data and the issues, just doing that doesn't solve the problem of culture in a big distributed leadership environment and I think you know the reality is that having detailed conversations with people about microaggressions and teaching styles and uh, you know all of those kind of really complicated issues many of which are in the control of you know academic departments and so on is much more complicated than some of those other dead simple access initiatives and if that means we constantly need a set of recommendations that say look you've got to go deeper into the culture of your university You've got to involve more people, both academics, students and so on. Uh, this has to be a kind of whole university approach to a particular issue. Then do you know what? Although it's a bit dull, if those recommendations in similar ways come out 10 times in a row on 10 wicked pro pro policy issues, I think in the end that will have a positive effect because it will start to change the way universities are governed and run. Now it's time for yes. But does it correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan. 
Welcome back to Yes But Does It Correlate, plotting HE data on multiple axes for your statistically significant listening pleasure. In higher education, we sometimes like to think that graduate employment rates are outside of the control of providers, and that it's unfair to measure them based on graduate destinations. If this is the case, there would be a strong correlation between progression rates five years ago and last year. Using the OFS access and participation data, we can take a look at this trend for the English system. Yes, but does it correlate? I would expect numbers to correlate, but I would expect where interventions are applied at, a, at an institutional level that we would expect to see uh, improvement in response to good policy. Yeah, I, 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 don't, I would have thought that if it were the case that universities um, were kind of in control of graduate employment, there wouldn't necessarily, sorry, there would be a correlation um, between the progression rates because that would be their you know, responsibility unless they had made sort of big policy changes, whereas... I mean, obviously, the kind of economic environment and the labour market sort of fluctuates. So if it's not in their control, then then there wouldn't be a strong color- correlation. But I really don't know. And there's a weak correlation. R squared is 0.31. The trend is positive. The sector overall moved from 64% progression to 71% over those five years. How much of this is down to the work of providers and how much is due to a small economic upturn in that time is still up for debate. But the fact we are seeing a number of large positive changes in graduate employment or further study is encouraging. The data is from the OFS access and participation data set and includes only providers where data is available for both years in question. As usual, where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. And finally, two full-time postdoctoral researchers will conduct a two-year academic study to uncover how the University of Cambridge contributed to and profited from slavery and other forms of coerced labour during the colonial era. Jim, what do you make of this? Uh, Okay, uh, as quickly as possible. Um, I think there's a couple of ways that you can look at this. The cynic would say... um, Student campaigners, often in the face of some really, really nasty stuff from the right-wing press, um, have been campaigning on these issues, particularly in uh, the kind of better endowed end of the sector for many years. And, um, you know, if you look at some of the mess in the US over some of the similar issues here, um, the cynic would say, okay, so throwing some academics at this problem and trying to generate a level-headed response and so on is a way of man- managing campus tensions. I think the optimist would say it's a really good thing to see a university like Cambridge and under the leadership of uh, Stephen Tip actually, actually acknowledge uh, these issues formally and properly. I mean, there are some problems in this. So uh, one of the things that's emerged is that the researchers will look at the Central University of Cambridge and not necessarily the individual colleges. And anyone that watches University Challenge will know that there is a significant difference between the kind of uh, Central University and the individual colleges and the level of autonomy and so on. But I think, you know, broadly, the idea that institutions are not least as part of, you know, the item we were discussing earlier, starting to come to terms with their history and the way in which their history has then led to some of the, you know, some of the raw stats, both financial and then in achievement gaps that you start to see, uh, as I say, in the earlier item, I think is probably a really positive thing. It's not a sector issue. Um, to my knowledge, there are only two English universities that overlapped with the slave trading year and probably four in Scotland. So I'm not saying, I, I probably look at it in some senses, this is a very Oxbridge specific issue. I know there is probably some of the some of the older universities as well that may, in some sense, have received benefit, you know, benefit from people who may have made money in a previous era, in which 
involved slave trading, but it's to be honest, as I said, I, I feel this is a this is very much an Oxbridge issue rather than a sector issue. Um, and I'm probably on that basis inclined to, to leave it to them in terms of how they choose to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with Jim. I think it's important to understand the past and the role that it's played in contributing towards the, the present. But I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's clearly such a divide on this. I mean, to me, I find it hard to see this as anything other than an unmitigated good. I know that the Guardian coverage has been quite positive around it. Um, but it is interesting to see how it was interpreted by some other papers. Um, you know, the Daily Mail said, judging distant events by modern standards is absurd and will end in cringing self-flagellation, which just, which, you know, just seems sort of sad to not even try. Um, and the Daily Telegraph carried quotes from an academic uh, called Jill Evans saying that it was a backhanded approach which could mess with history. Um, and I just, I, th- I think the sort of division between those two different attitudes is, is, is really different because there's just two just completely different ways of, of approaching a you know, approaching history and how we conceive of history and the role that it plays in modern life. So I think I think there's like a really a really big question to to grapple with there, which is why I find this such a, such a sort of fascinating exercise. Like it's more than just one university kind of delving into its past. It's a bigger good question about what we do with the legacy of the past. And look, in, in some senses, I think I agree with Alec. Although you know the the, the the kind of economic history of the of the UK and the way in which that has supported the development of lots of other bits of the sector, really, I think is fascinating. You know, the obvious example that springs to mind um, is the University of Bristol, you know, formed via Royal Royal Charter with the support of the Wills and Fry families, both of whom made their fortunes in tobacco plantations and chocolate. So, you know, made their fortunes on the back of the slave trade. Uh, gave a university to the people of Bristol. Um, Bristol has its own black attainment cap and so on and so on. So I think, um, of course, for all sorts of obvious reasons, when you look at the balance sheet of Oxford and Cambridge, there's a very specific, very important issue to, to, to interrogate, I think. But the, 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 the kind of wider economic history of the UK and the way in which universities have developed over X hundred of years, I, I think may well have some interesting implications for the rest of the sector at some point. Yeah, I feel like I almost wish we had an American here with us because I think in the US there's been a lot there's you know been a much more kind of interesting conversation about the the legacy of slavery there was an interesting series run by the Guardian US around sort of like colorism and how that originated sort of among black people and how that that originated in in slavery and how that hasn't really been properly addressed yet and I think it's something that a lot of countries are, are, are grappling with but they all sort of need to do it in their own way. So that is about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find the links in the show notes and don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch so thanks to Rachel and to Alec and to Jim and to everyone at Team Wonky for making it happen and until next week stay global Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.